Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie. Hello, good morning, and welcome to the Michael Reed Show. This is Ken Murray. I'm with you until 11 a.m. this morning, and Michael, of course, will be back with you tomorrow. Coming up, the state is losing 27 million euro from unpaid fines. We talked to Fianna Fáil TD Sean Fleming. Navin residents are none too pleased as the doctor on call office relocates to Dunshockton. Delays in upgrading facilities at the Hill of Tara are raised in the Dáil. Thomas Byrne TD will tell us more. We'll also have details on a major study on mental health issues among young people. We talked to Carol Duffy from Dundalk, a Muslim and close friend of ISIS bride Lisa Smith, who is due to return to Ireland in the coming days. A call is made to investigate mobile phone records following fatal road accidents. Today is International Men's Day. We hear about issues that affect the modern-day Irish male. And on Garda Shia Corner will update us on recent crime committed in the Loud Mead area. That's all coming up between now and 11 a.m. And if you want to get in touch, our text and WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658 or you can call us on 1850-715-958. Now... A report in the Irish Examiner newspaper revealed that €27 million in unpaid fines uh, has been, if you like, deprived of the Irish Exchequer. The report also revealed that 70,000 drivers disqualified since 2012. Indeed, uh, these are people who have, uh, if you like, failed to surrender their licences and cannot be pursued by the courts due to a legal loophole. €27 million would pay for a lot of hospitals, a lot of schools and uh, indeed would recruit a lot of teachers and nurses, and the list goes on. Sean Fleming is uh, Fianna Fáil TD for Leash, but he's also the chair of the Oireachtas Public Accounts Committee and joins me now. Sean, first of all, how can you explain what the loophole in the law is that's allowing this, if you like, uh, failure of the state to collect €27 euro? Okay, thank you, Ken. The biggest element of it is that everybody will be aware over the years, people, if they got fines in court and didn't pay them, sometimes for television licenses, etc., at the end of the day, they were ultimately brought by the guards um, to jail. 
and they, they went up to Mount Joy or wherever the case may be or one of the other prisons. They were brought in, they were signed in, they sat down for an hour or two, got a cup of tea and were home before lunch. So people felt that that was a terrible waste of time and effort and state resources because of a small unpaid fine. So the Department of Justice decided to try and end that kind of, which was a slightly farcical situation, uh, by forcing and incentivising the people to pay the fines and not having to go to court. So what they decided to do in 2016, about three years ago, was that if somebody doesn't pay a fine, they get back, they get brought back in front of the judge, and this would incentivise them according to the department just and frighten them, and then actually pay the fine. But what actually happened, people continue to ignore the fines as always. The threat of jail was by and large removed now. They ignored um, the original court order from the judge and the fine couldn't be imposed unless they were brought back a second time in front of the judge um, for not paying the fine. So that resulted in about 90,000 cases building up over the years, the 27 million that you referred to. But the court services told us uh, last Thursday at the Public Accounts Committee that if all those 90,000 people were brought back before the courts, the district courts of Ireland, no other work could be done in the court. It would totally bog down the entire system. So we have an admission that they're not capable of dealing with and implementing the legislation as passed because they don't have the staff, the resources or the ability to do it. And as a result, we're in this farcical situation that if people ignore the fines, as of now, they appear to be getting off with it. And if you start from the beginning, people who get speeding fines and everything like that, um, over 80% of people pay their fines. Then the 20% get brought to court. Half of them get struck out because they sometimes they say, I didn't get the notice or I didn't get the fixed penalty charge notice and sometimes they're struck out. But those who actually get convictions, a large proportion of them are ignoring them and walking out of the court and no notion. There is no system to follow them up to bring them back. And even if they know the names and addresses of all these people now, they don't have... And the facilities in the court to, to bring them all back in before the court because there's a take um, all the work of the court to actually catch up in this backlog that they've created. It sounds like absolute madness. Surely, surely that sends out a signal that if you're fined in court, don't bother paying because you'll get off. And is it fair to say that a lot of people are taking advantage of this freedom? They are indeed, and what's even I'm more concerned about it. This is about the administration of justice, and one would hope that when you know fines are issued by the state, you have broken the law, that you are a law-abiding citizen then and pay your fine. The over eighty percent of people pay their fines. They're going to say. Why are we the just paying our fines? If we just don't bother, nothing is going to happen. And this is undermining public confidence in the administration of justice in Ireland when the 85% or 80% of law-abiding citizens who pay the fine see that those who ignore it are apparently getting away with it. And that's what I'm very worried about. Others will start doing the same unless this is brought to check very quick. Okay, now, uh, has the time come for the state to say, look, instead of Johnny or Mary appearing in court and we fine you 50 euro, can you pay by next Monday, uh, that the time has come for a different type of system to extract money from individuals, i.e. by docking uh, a welfare payment or taking money from their income tax? Is that a way to go or are there legal issues surrounding that? Okay, that has merit, and everybody I've spoken to on this matter since last week has said exactly as you were saying, and I'm sure your listeners would say the same as well. And I think there needs to be some simple way of getting the money from the people. If they show up in court, 
you know, they must come with their debit card or credit card or some type of a card or some details of their payment. However, the only issue that you alluded to there is that people, before this interview is over, people would will be on to you complaining this is a breach of their privacy and data protection. Their employer should, it's not their employer's business to know if they have a conviction for speeding. Now, other people say, well, if they pay the fine, the employer wouldn't have to know. So look, there's a balance there. I actually think there needs to be a system in court. You don't walk out of a shop without paying for your goods. You shouldn't walk out of the court without having a mechanism in place for paying the fine. And that system... It's not just broken. It doesn't exist in the first place. So we need a system in court, almost like the cash office, you know, at the front of the court. You got your fine, pay your money, and out you go. I think we're eventually going to have to come to something like that. Because once you walk out of the court, for the court to bring you back in three months' time for not paying the fine and adjourn the case if the guard is not there to give evidence and it's adjourned again, it's clogging up the system. We need... Uh, an instant way of people paying the fines when they get a fine. Okay, do we know what happens in other countries? I mean, if people don't pay their fines in the UK or Germany or France, do they have a way of dealing with this? Ken, genuinely, I don't know the answer to that, so I'm not going to bluff. I don't know. I mean, the the figure here is €27 million. Now, is this €27 million going back a number of years, we'll say back to 2016 when the change in the law occurred? And, I mean, is it affecting the budgets of the judicial and court service? Is that in itself then stretching revenues from other departments to pay the bills? No, but what it is, and your very first opening comment was correct, if the state had that £27 million, if that had been handed into the exchequer, they would have had that £27 million for other services, the health service or special needs or education. So it's not the, the courts aren't losing out. They have their compliments to judges and staff, but they need to actually implement the system um, with the Road Safety Authority in the Garda Siakana. So there is a system in place in relation to um, people paying the fines in court. But then this boils down to the next point you're going to mention is the whole question of people's driver's licence. We don't have a database of driver licence in Ireland, so that's why even if the courts try to do this, they don't, there is no database by which they can match fines to a person's driver's licence in the country. We need that database because, um, as you alluded to there in your opening remarks, we have a lot of people who are told in court to hand up their driving licence because of a conviction. They never bring the, in many cases, they don't bring their driving licence to court and they walk out. And again, there is no system in place, none whatever, in the court or with the guardian in the court to collect the driver's licence from the person if they get a conviction. And again, we have a large number, thousands of people on the road with a driver's licence in their possession that shouldn't be in their possession and those people are at risk on the Irish roads because they have convictions for dangerous driving and other offences. And in some cases, we've seen many cases of people being killed on the road by people uh, who shouldn't have been on the road because their sure, license shouldn't sure. have been handed up. Sure. Now, you, you discussed this at the Oireachtas Public Accounts Committee last week. Did anybody make a suggestion that uh, made you all say, yep, yeah, that's the way to solve this problem? Or are you looking at any, we'll say, wider package of options? Okay, the, the public accounts will make our recommendation, but it'll be probably we'll have to consider this matter over the next month or two. However, what was most disturbing at the meeting last Thursday was some of the issues we highlighted or we've just spoken about. The court services said that before the law came in in 2016 about these fines, they warned the Department of Justice that this would happen, it would clog up the courts, and the Department of Justice ignored it. 
So um, they were well warned in advance. And we had the situation on Friday, on Thursday. Yeah, the court service blaming the Department of Justice. Somebody else said the guards should be doing it. Somebody else said the Department of Transport is responsible for road traffic legislation. And somebody else said the road safety authority should be involved in this. So you had five state organisations all passing the book from one to the other and none of them taking responsibility. So that's where we will have to come in as the Public Accounts Committee. And definitely... We need a database of all driving licences in the country. For example, I got the old driving licence eight years ago, the old paper one. It's for 10 years. I won't get one of the new credit card type driver licences for another two years. So there's no database of a lot of the driving licences in the country. So nobody, there's no system even for the guards to check is it, should a driving licence be handed in. And people can wave uh, a driving licence at the guards at a checkpoint and drive on. And really to upset your listeners, what was most bizarre, what came out in public courts, it often happens that a judge will tell a person to hand up their driver's licence for driving offences, dangerous driving, and the person may never had a driving licence to start with. It could have been, in the cases I have seen in open court, it could have been young lads in their early 20s, never had a provisional licence, never had a full driving licence, never did their test, found guilty of dangerous driving, and the judge tells them to hand up the licence. And they walk out of the court laughing, because they don't even have a licence to start with. And there's no system in place to even deal with that. So the system ain't broken. The system doesn't even exist. It needs to be built from scratch. But that then, Sean, that then raises questions. I mean, I've worked in Leinster House for quite a long time. I'm familiar with a thing called pre-legislative scrutiny. Why are these ideas uh, in terms of addressing payments not built into any law in relation to offences? Well, what I will say is that legislation to stop people being wheeled up and down to jail for two hours is a good idea to eliminate that. There was a germ of a good idea in the legislation, but had the Oireachtas been told and made aware that the court services said this is a good idea, but it ain't going to work unless there are arrangements put in place for the extra court sittings. We weren't aware of the, T- the TDs at the time when this was being discussed that the court services were warning the department behind the scenes that this was going to be a problem. Had we known that and been told that, but the Department of Justice knew that and effectively concealed a lot of information from the Oireachtas. And now we see two years on and three years on that the court service, their warning should have been heeded in the first place. Um, can I put a scenario to you that uh, we have a similar type of culture, for example, with uh, evasion when it comes to paying the TV licence fee? Some people pay, others don't. But yet, if you want to watch Sky TV, you sign up for a monthly uh, debit system and the money is automatically taken out of your account, whether you watch Sky TV on a regular basis or not. Has the time come, for example, that if Johnny or Mary is being prosecuted for either speeding or dangerous driving? that by virtue of the fact that they're going to appear in court that somebody like a registrar says okay Johnny we want your bank details in advance if you get off you don't have to pay us anything but at least if you are fined we have your details and you have an option to either pay up one lump sum or we'll take so much euro per month until the fine is paid is it time to go down that route? I personally think it is, and I think that's a better route than going after somebody's employer or somebody's social welfare payment because you're bringing other people into the individual offender's case at that stage and it could cause difficulty. As I said at the beginning, I think 
like the supermarket, we, there should be a cash office in every court building that you can't leave the building without paying your fine, handing in a card, either in full or a stage payment arrangement put in place. You shouldn't be able to walk out. You can't walk out of any commercial premises after uh, being told you owe money and walk out the door and say, goodbye, I'm not coming back. And I think the state has to bring itself into the modern world on that matter, crude and all as it looks. But I'll tell you, if people knew there was a cash office in the court and they were going to get a fine of 300 for not paying a speeding fine, they'd have paid the speeding fine at €80 Euro in the first place. I and mean, you would probably cut down on even um, the number of people being brought to court because they said there's no escape now. Whereas do people know there's an escape when they get to court, they can walk out the street and have a laugh. Uh, can I put this scenario to you, that if uh, Johnny O'Mary is fined €50 Euro for dangerous driving, and I'm only just using that as, yeah. a, if you like, a debatable uh, example, yeah. uh, if um, a punishment was put in on the basis that if the €50 Euro wasn't paid by date X, it then goes up to €80, Euro, and if it's not paid by date X, it then goes up to €100. Euro. In other words, if there was a penalty beyond the penalty, people might pay up on time because they know that the longer they leave it, the more they would have to pay. Do you think that would work? I think that's the problem. I think the cash office is the simpler, neatest way and the people pay up and you don't have to have another system in place to chase and add interest or lay payments on to an outstanding fine. And the reason I say that is if a judge issues a fine for €50, as you say, the judge is entitled to believe that that fine will be paid and to pass a law on the presumption people won't pay fines. Some people might say that's not the right approach um, and you're probably assuming a guilty person is going to be guilty of not paying a further fine. And maybe, maybe, I'm not a solicitor, that could be difficult. The simplest way, I think, is to have a cash office in every court building in the country. And um, I think when people knew they were going to be caught when they come to court to pay the fine, they probably pay the fine sure. and not come to court in the first place. Sure. Sean, very, uh, very quickly, very briefly, how soon will the Oireachtas Public Accounts Committee come up with its recommendations? And once those recommendations are published, how soon do you think there will be a change in the culture? Well, um, it will be the new year before the Public Accounts Committee because we're meeting with the Revenue Commissioners and the National Pediatric Hospital Development Board in relation to those cost overruns between now and Christmas. So we have quite a lot of work on our schedule in the next month or so. However, I actually think the debate we're having um, will spur the Department of Justice to realise this system can't continue any longer. We will issue our report in the autumn, but ultimately, or sorry, in the spring, but ultimately it is going to be a matter for the government um, to take action on foot of a recommendation from the Public Accounts Committee. It will boil down to a Cabinet decision um, early next year. OK, we're going to leave it there. Sean Fleming, Fianna Fáil TD for Leash and Chairman of the Public Accounts Committee, thanks very much indeed for joining us on the programme. You're listening to The Michael Reid Show with myself, Ken Murray. If you do want to get in touch, our text and WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658 or you can call us on one eight fifty seven one. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, the Northeast Doctor on Call Service is to relocate from Navan to Dunshockton. Good news if you live in the Dunshockton, Ratoth, Dunboyne area, but not so good if you're in Navan, Kells, Knobber or surrounding areas. Arlene Fitzsimons is Operations Manager with uh, the Northeast Doctor on Call Service, and she joins me now. Uh, Arlene, the uh, the NEDOC facility, as it's sometimes uh, referred to, um, has been in prefabs in Navan. It was meant to be a temporary rearrangement in 2001 and effectively is still there. Has the HSE forgot all about it? 
Well, Ken, I think the first thing I'd just like to say is that it's really important that patients know that from next Tuesday, the 26th of November, that if they ring the doctor on call centre and they usually go to Navin, to the Grounds of Our Ladies Hospital, to the NEDOC centre there, they should instead, next Tuesday, go to the Dunshockland Healthcare Unit. So this is a temporary move. Um, ideally, we would remain in Navin, but um, the existing port cabin, as you say, is absolutely not fit for purpose and hasn't been fit for purpose for some years. Um, the GPs have been advocating for many, many years uh, for a new centre for their patients. Um, and the centre in Navin is the base of, uh, for all of the GP practices in the region. So from, as you said already, from Retote to Boyne to Chocolate, Summerhill, Trim, Nobber, Kells, everybody travels to Navin. Um, and the patients in Navin have been very fortunate um, and it's lucky they have a centre on their doorstep. But it is the largest population centre and it is the ideal spot for the doctor on call service. Um, and we hope that we will be back um, in Navin in spring. Why, why move to Dunshockton? I mean, could uh, additional space not have been found in the, uh, if you like, the surrounds of Navin Hospital to just simply uh, move the centre from, uh, I think, just inside the gate there, maybe to the back of the hospital? Or is there no space available in Navin at all? Well, for many years, we have been trying to find an alternate centre for uh, to, to locate the doctor on call service. And um, we have looked in... Uh, in the grounds of the hospital, we've looked at existing buildings, we've looked to share facilities, we have gone outside to um, private buildings. We have really tried very hard to find an alternate space in Navin. And it, you would think that it would be easier than this, but unfortunately we were not able to find anywhere for many years. Um, it has come to the point where um, GPs really feel that it's not appropriate for their patients to be seen in the port cabin anymore. It's beyond um, its lifespan um, and so they lobbied to the HSC very hard to say that we really do need to move and the HSC have listened um, and we have identified a unit in Navin. Um, it's going through the planning process at the moment. We hope that will be complete very shortly. Some work needs to be done to that unit so that it's ready for us and it's suitable for our needs and we hope that that will all be complete in the spring and that we'll return to Navin in March. Okay, can I ask you, how bad are the conditions in Navin? Well, I think all port cabins have a limited lifespan, and this one is beyond us. We moved into it in 2001, and so it is 19 years old. Um, It's very decrepit. I have been on your show before talking about it. It's you know, it's cold in the winter and it's warm in the summer. And when you have patients who are suffering, really they're very unwell and they're suffering gastric problems and they have high temperatures, you have to have a unit that is appropriate for their needs. Um, this one is not. It's not fair for patients, not for, for staff who are in there every day. Um, and it's, it's just beyond its sell-by date. You know, it's damp and um, it's just not fit for purpose. Uh, on the basis that Navin is the biggest town in County Meath, uh, this will inconvenience, I presume, a lot of local people. Um, has all this been taken into account when deciding to relocate to Dunshockton? Everything has been taken into account. I think you raise a very valid point. Ideally, we would remain in Navin all the time. Ideally, the other units that we have identified would be ready. 
unfortunately it's not it had to go through a planning process we are awaiting the outcome of that and hopefully it will be successful and we'll return to Navan and um, I expect that it will um, patients from all over the county travel to Navan um, and it serves patients from all over from Dunboyne to Nobber um, Dunshocklin is on the motorway the unit there is modern it's excellent for our purposes on a temporary basis um, it's really quite accessible. Now I know it's inconvenient for patients in Navan who traditionally have been able to pop up uh, quite easily to it but um, unfortunately um, we just need we just need to move out of the existing unit and the available space on a temporary basis is in Dunshockland. Okay can I ask you this question? I'm a bit surprised that you're moving from Navan to Dunshockland uh, and you're waiting for the outcome of the planning permission. Now, at face value, logic says you get your planning permission, then you relocate. But it seems, and correct me if I'm wrong, you've decided to move and you're still then waiting on the planning permission. If the planning permission doesn't go your way, effectively, you will have moved to Dunshockland for no reason. Or is that the case? I don't think you could say we've, we would move for no reason. The planning process is what it is and the planners will decide whether or not the designated unit is appropriate for our use. It seems that it is, but that's entirely down to the planners and um, we want to have a location in Navan. That's our priority. We want to be in Navan. Um, planning is beyond our control. Um, but the current port cabin is absolutely not fit for patients to be seen in. Well, can I just ask you one question before we wrap it up? Uh, the, the new facility, if you like, will it be, you know, the equivalent of the Shelburne Hotel or will it be something that will be of the same size as the Porter Cabin or will it be more spacious? Will it be more warm? Will there be more room? What can people who rely on the uh, Northeast Doctor on Call service expect? Well, the new unit will be in a, uh, a permanent structure and a permanent building. It won't be a port cabin for a start. Um, it will definitely be a vast improvement on what we have. Um, I'm really looking forward to it. It's lovely and um, it's ground floor. It's accessible for patients. Um, it has all the positives that we need for the doctor on call service. We need a certain number of consultation rooms. We need nurses rooms, a waiting room, good reception area, decent comms. And it provides and it serves all of those needs that we have. So I'm looking forward to returning to Navan in March. Um, and we really, it will be good for all of our patients. It's just, I would say that for patients who want to use our service, um, to be able to come into a much better, brighter unit in March is going to be a positive for them. But in the interim, just from next Tuesday, so this day week, uh, the 26th of November, if you need to ring the doctor on call, if you are given an appointment and ordinarily you, you attend Navan and you go up to Our Lady's Hospital, it's now imperative that you recollect that you are to go to some chocolate healthcare unit. Now, the centre, the, stat, the call takers and the triage nurses will all advise you of that as well. I think that's very important. It's all planned for. Um, patients will be advised that they are to go to Dunshockland from next Tuesday. Okay. Uh, we're going to leave it there. That's uh, Arlene Fitzsimons. Thanks very much indeed uh, for joining us, Arlene. Arlene is Operations Manager with the Northeast Doctor on Call. So if you need to go to the doctor next week from Tuesday onwards, you have been warned. You're listening to The Michael Reed Show with myself, Ken Murray. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM.
As I said, if you do want to get in touch, our text and WhatsApp number is 0861800658 or you can call us on 1850-715-958. Now, as you're probably aware, the Hill of Tara is one of Ireland's leading tourist attractions. It attracts visitors from all over the world. It's a very famous part of Irish heritage and history. It is said the High Kings of Ireland once lived there. But uh, all is not well on the Hill of Tara because uh, Recently, the graveyard wall collapsed, and this required some work, and the matter was raised in the Dáil recently. I'm joined on the line now by Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East, Thomas Byrne. He's the party's spokesperson on education, and he has been known to impersonate Rick Astley in his time, and he joins me on the line right now. Good morning, Thomas. Good morning, Ken. Now, you raised uh, the status of the improvement works at the Hill of Tara in County Mead last week with... Uh, the Minister of State for the Office of Public Works, Kevin Boxer-Moran. What did you ask and what did he say? Well, uh, unfortunately, there was very little time uh, in the doll at that particular point when my question came up. So I really only got a very short time to ask him a question. There's a number of issues going on there. First of all, the, the graveyard wall collapsed, I think, over four years ago. Um, and work, as, well, maybe longer than that, but work is certainly ongoing about four years. And the Minister admitted that in the doll. Uh, and it's extremely unsightly. Uh, to anybody going up to Tara. In fact, it's quite shocking if you were to walk up there, if, if, you're, if you're not regular to Tara, uh, to see uh, the way the place has been left by the OPW. Uh, and the problem is that uh, OPW staff are stretched. There's a lot to do. Uh, and as far as I can see, uh, this work continues uh, when they get a chance, uh, when they're able to do it, when resources allow. Uh, and in the meantime, the place is just left looking literally like a building site. And it's completely inappropriate uh, for what effectively is remediation work this is simply to, to protect the wall. Apparently, it is stabilised, um, but it is it, it, it simply it, it's not going to improve um, the situation at Tara. And there's a lot of other issues at Tara as well that need to be addressed too. That the minister didn't get into, mainly probably because we didn't have enough time. But effectively, the, the complete dart of any facilities there provided by the state, uh, there's, there's effectively no facilities provided by the state uh, up at the hill of Tara. Everything is provided by uh, local business people and local people in terms of parking in terms of um, the toilet facilities as well. So I, I just don't think the OPW are taking this particular place seriously. Well, I was just uh, going to come to that, Thomas. I mean, if the OPWHQ was in Roscommon or Donegal, one might say, yes, this is not on their radar. But the OPWHQ is, what, six miles away in Trim. Wouldn't, one, all, yeah. wouldn't one think that the Hill of Tara, with its extraordinary history and heritage and the fact that Meath probably attracts more tourists uh, in Leinster than any other uh, county bar Dublin, that the Hill of Tara would be treated as a priority, but that does not seem to be the case. Um, does this raise questions about where the OPW's priorities lie? Well, I just don't think that there's an understanding there of the importance of Tara at, 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 at national level. It's just simply not appreciated to the extent that it should be. Um, at, at many levels, in fact, I think um, the, the area around it is very, very inaccessible, very hard to get. It can be quite dangerous if you're driving up there and a bus comes your way. Um, so there's a lot of other, lot of issues there, and I think it is divided between uh, the Department of Heritage, who have responsibility for heritage and you know promoting the place and and protecting our heritage, and then the OPW, who actually own the site and do a lot of the work on the ground. Um, and it's it, what I found in the Dáil, and I've raised this issue before about the Hill of Tara, is that everyone seems to want to pass the book. So you've got the Department of Heritage, the OPW, and of course Mead County Council as well. And they obviously can't question them in the Dáil, but they're they're restricted and constrained by by a lack of funding as well. 
Um, I think um, so. Uh, th- there are huge issues with it. It does take everybody working together uh, to try to make sure that Tara is protected, that is enhanced, is promoted, uh, and is recognised and valued valued for what it is. Um, but really, what is being looked for here, and certainly in my doll question, was very very simple items like to make sure they just finished the job that was started over four years ago, uh, and at the same time try to provide or at least try to have a plan to provide uh, better facilities and I mean the Minister has been down, he's met residents he's met people but literally nothing has happened uh, and residents, every so often residents I suppose get the energy together to try to uh, rise up and uh, you know make a song and dance or a bit of a protest about this or contact politicians um, but it seems that at the official level then at government level it tends to die down after a while when the pressure is off so that's my objective is really to keep the pressure on about this uh, to make sure that it does get the recognition and the historical importance and the national importance and the, I mean Tara is so stitched up in the Irish identity that it really needs to be treated uh, a hell of a lot better. Uh, there seems to be a wider issue here, uh, namely that the OPW and Fulcher Ireland appear, I could be wrong, but they appear to be putting all their energies into promoting Brunabonia, the, the, the whole Newgrange trip, if you like, and uh, the facility there outside Dunor seems to be the be-all and end-all as far as uh, Fulcher Ireland is concerned. I mean, is it time for somebody to sit down with Fulcher Ireland and say, look, we have Tara, we have the Book of Kells, we have the Norman Castle at Trim, we have Lock Crew, and we have have other sites like Clonalvi as well around the place that need to be, if you like, on the tourist map. Isn't it time for somebody to lobby Falter Ireland and say, look, please promote these other areas, but at the same time, talk to the OPW to improve the attractiveness of these facilities? Yeah, I mean, look, uh, I actually wouldn't really blame Falter Ireland. I think the last point you made is probably um, the one I'd agree with. Uh, that, you know, if, if Fault Ireland need to be getting on to the OPW, need to be getting on to the Department of Heritage and me County Council and say, look, get your act together, because, I mean, their job is to attract tourists into the country. But, you know, it's very uh, suitable for them to attract tourists into Newgrange, where there's really good facilities and they're going to be improved again. Um, but to send busloads of people uh, up to the hill of Tara is not very practical, or to send buses up to the Four Knox and Clonalvi, which you mentioned, is not practical either, because there's very little there to, to tell you how important that particular site is, and, and in fact how accessible it is and how beautiful it is. Very little. Uh, so many of the items uh, and places that are so important to our, our cultural heritage, our identity as Irish people, uh, are simply not appreciated uh, by official done, and that has to change. And I think for Ireland, if if the facilities are provided by the OPW, um, by the Department of Heritage and the County Council, then Falter Ireland can say, yeah, we'll bring people to it. But I can't blame Falter Ireland for directing people to Newgrange when, at, at the very least, the facilities are there uh, to make sure the tourists uh, can have a, a good time. But this isn't simply about tourism. This is about our national identity. This is about who we are as a people. Uh, and I think that that, that, that that is why these sites are so important. They, they resonate so much throughout our history, um, at various points in our history, whether it's ancient history, whether it's the early Christian Ireland, or indeed our, our you know modern nationalist history as well, Daniel O'Connell particularly, the Hill of Tara. Uh, this is such an important site at every stage uh, of Irish identity. Well then, isn't it time for the Meath East and the Meath West TDs to bang heads together and go into the OPW with a plan and say, look, come on lads, get your act together. Meath has more heritage to offer than probably anywhere else in the country and it's time all of Meath, not just Brunabonia, uh, was put on the tourist map. 
Well, I, I, I would completely agree with that. Absolutely agree with that. And I certainly be willing to work with anybody uh, to make sure that this gets done. I think the, the theory that's there at the moment that the departments, uh, the two departments and the council work together on this um, needs to be basically implemented and that people can't keep passing the book. We all must take responsibility uh, for our cultural heritage. And the point you made earlier on was that uh, the approach road, for example, into Tara is very narrow. Uh, parking is somewhat limited. Um, it likewise, is it time for the Minister uh, for Culture, Heritage and the Gael Talk, Josepha Madigan, to put, if you like, a, a specific budget aside to widen the roads, to create more parking space and to make Tara more of a tourist attraction? Well, I think if you if you said that to the Minister for Heritage, she'd probably just say, sorry, the roads are a matter for Mead County Council. That's the answer I would get back. And I suppose in theory that's true, but Mead County Council will never have the resources uh, to do that. In, in my opinion, there must be a, a serious scope uh, for a public transport system that brings tourists, say, between Trim, which as I say is extremely close by, uh, Navan, uh, Brunabonia, Screen, Kells, all these places are very, very close by and there must be scope for some kind of an organised tourist bus to bring people that they can park in their hotels, which which won't be a Tara, um, whether it's Trim or whether it's Dunboyne or whether it's Navan or Drada um, or Kells, uh, and be brought to these places on an organised way. I'm convinced there's a market for that because I, I really think uh, that would bring more people to it. It would um, you know, give an example of how our facilities can be best in class uh, and show that we are appreciating uh, this particular part of our heritage and show how serious we are about it. I think I think everybody would gain uh, from that. Okay, Thomas, we're going to leave it there. It's something we'll be keeping an eye on in the months and years ahead. That's uh, Thomas Byrne, Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East, and his party's spokesperson on education. Now, just uh, a little warning for drivers in the Carlinstown area of County Me. The listener got in touch to warn people that the road between Fyanstown and Carlinstown is in a pretty bad way this morning. There's a number of cars already in the ditch on the road. Apparently, with the rain last night, the mud on the road has turned it into a bit of a, a skating rink so if you're driving in that area uh, watch out for the uh, road surface there between Fyanstown and Carlinstown. Okay you're listening to the Michael Reed show this is Ken Murray we have more to come uh, following the news but before all that we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM and you've been busy on the text and phone lines and joining me in studio is our producer, Marie Cairns. Marie, what are the people of the Loud Meath area saying this morning? They're saying quite a lot, Ken. Go on, tell us more. Uh, Margaret from Navin was in touch and she says that she was listening to your interview at the top of the show with the chair of the Public Accounts Committee, Sean Fleming, and she is shocked at the amount of money that's owed in unpaid fines. She says, how can this have been allowed to happen? She says that, why should some people pay fines and other people not pay fines? And this is what really annoys her, that you have always the same people who seem to get away with everything. James from Drogheda says that he thought the law was brought in to stop people from going to jail for minor offences, like not having a TV licence. He didn't agree with that. But at the same time, he didn't realise that if people were fined and they didn't pay, they were just going to get away with it. That there has to be some form of punishment if they don't pay up, uh, says James. Uh, another listener, I'm furious listening into your show. Sorry about that. I cannot believe... I hope it's nothing personal. <laughs> I cannot believe that if someone is fined, 
they can just ignore it like yep. nothing happens that is absolutely crazy and it makes a mockery of the judicial system um, Mary says that she feels sorry for the Gardaí in this country they're out there trying to do their job and they go through all the motions and then you have somebody that is fined and then they just get off scot-free so what's the prevention there um, we talk about safety on our roads speeding is a huge issue if someone is fined they should be made to pay give people time to pay alright but surely they can't just get away with not paying think about all the good work and you mentioned that Ken at the top of your interview that could be done with that money sure sure so lots on that um, and the last one for now uh, Ken uh, another listener John also contacted us on the same issue and says that this country, he's just sick of it, Ken. He's just sick of it. Why do we have these loopholes? What's the point in in having laws in this country if people are not going to be punished when they break the rules? It makes a complete mockery of the law. It does. But the problem is the law itself. It's badly framed, it's badly executed and there's bad systems in place to collect this public money that's owed to the state. That's right. So that's the last one for the moment, Ken, and I'll be back to you in a few minutes. Okay, Marie will be back to us uh, a little bit later on with some more of your comments. And if you do want to get in touch, our text and WhatsApp number is 086-1800-658 or indeed you can call us on 1850-715-958. Now, there's been a significant increase in anxiety amongst young people according to a major study on youth mental health. Is there something going on? Are young people depressed or are we living with what's sometimes referred to as the snowflake generation? This generation who get all upset if they don't get their way and they live in a world where they just don't seem to appreciate money and the slog that their parents went through uh, to get where they are. Well to discuss this further uh, we have uh, on the line Representative Farm Jigsaw, whose name just escapes me right now. It's uh, Dr. Joseph Duffy. He's the CEO of Jigsaw. So thanks very much indeed, uh, Dr. Duffy, for uh, joining us this morning. Uh, Talk us through this survey. What exactly did you discover in the course of uh, your study of where we're at with mental health for young people in this country? Good morning, Ken. Uh, The My World survey is the second time in conjunction with UCD that we've conducted a national survey of youth mental health across Ireland. So we have almost 19,000 young people participating in this study. We surveyed uh, secondary schools, uh, one school, at least one school in every county in Ireland, all the third level colleges and a number of the the ITs. And this is the second time, as I said, that we've conducted the study. It's looking at both the risk and the protector factors, those factors that um, make or show young people to be vulnerable to mental health and those factors that show them that they're they're being uh, protected or that they can ensure their mental health gets better. What we know from this study this time really is that there's higher levels of anxiety, higher levels of low mood or depression um, amongst young people. Well, now, is it that there's more pressure on young people than ever before to try and achieve and get good results at school and, you know, move on in life? Or is it, as I said at the uh, the start of the intro uh, to, to you coming on to the programme, that we have what's sometimes referred to as the snowflake generation, a generation of young people 
who uh, throw tantrums when they don't get their way. They get all upset when uh, mummy or daddy won't let them go out with their friends. Uh, they feel that the world is against them because uh, the person down the road has an iPhone 7 and they don't. And you have all this type of stuff going on that we may be experiencing. I suppose the best way of putting this is um, a side effect from what is a prosperous society. Is all this factored into this or are there other things going on? I think, Ken, I suppose, to be honest, I think there are other things going on. I think there's no doubt that there is significant pressure uh, in school for, for young people. We know nationally and we know internationally that for young people, most mental health difficulties occur in the late teenage years. And so 75% of mental health difficulties occur within that time. So it's a particularly vulnerable time in terms of the transition from adolescence into adulthood. And what we looked at in this study, as I was saying, was what are the factors that are affecting young people now, getting their views on them. And certainly having the pressures in work, pressures in school and wider pressures in society is contributing. But this is part of an international, I suppose, phenomenon that we know that, that there's a sense that anxiety levels are increasing in young people. But what's also apparent in this, in this study is what we can do about that. We know, and and it sounds like some of the basic things that we might take for granted, but certainly for any parents listening, thinking about your young person, your adolescent, and looking at the amount of time that they're sleeping, exercise, and eating, all of those things really do make an impact. We know from this study that those young people um, who are having regular sleep, uh, sleep patterns, regular exercise, their mental health is much better. Is there, a, if you like, a shift in the way young people are living? I mean, you know, when I was a young fellow back in the 70s, you did as you were told. Uh, if you were bold at school, you probably got a slap on the wrist and you had a sense of discipline about you. But now youngsters uh, don't seem to, if you like, accept discipline in the same way. They're looking all around them to see what their friends have. And if some people live in wealthy homes and some live in poor homes, uh, you know, an element of bad feeling creeps in. Is this as a result, if you like, of a changing Ireland that is a world away from what we experienced as youngsters? I suppose one way to to sum up, I suppose, how children were treated in the past is that they were seen and not heard. And one of the important things about work like this is that it is giving voice to young people. What we want to know um, and what we've encouraged and what our, our services do is encouraging young people to talk about how they're feeling. What we need to do is, 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 is help them to have a broader language in terms of understanding how they're doing. But it's also about um, being able to have a resilience in terms of how they're coping and how they're being supported. I think what's also important for parents is thinking about what are the things that they can do to support them. And one of the things that really is apparent in this, in this research is the presence of a good adult in a young person's life. That's somebody who can support them, who can challenge them, but who is also there for them when there's difficulties. And we had seen this when we did the study the first time, but what we see now is not just the presence of that person in their life, but also the availability of that person. So if there's a regular contact from that adult, somebody who's actually going to be able to, to challenge them but also support them. That's what makes a difference. Joe, just very briefly, uh, I just want to squeeze in two questions, just very briefly. Um, We see marriage breakdown now as a more prevalent part of society. The absence of a parent in a life, does that create a a sense of anxiety uh, for a young child who feels uh, they've been left on their own, they don't get the love, they don't get the the nurturing that they uh, would have hoped and expected and that others around them get? Is that an issue? This, this study in, in, in this report didn't look particularly uh, in terms of looking at the absence of a, of a parent through marital breakdown. 
But what we do know is, as I was just said, is the, is the importance of a good adult. And sometimes that adult doesn't have to be a parent. It can be an aunt or uncle. It can be a godparent. It can be a grandparent. And for any young child, any young adolescent, is having somebody in their life they can talk to and be supported by, that's what's going to make the difference. And very briefly, uh, Dr Duffy, do we have a situation now where it's time perhaps for the Department of Education to deal with things like how to treat anxiety as part of the school curriculum? There has been moves in the last while and and there's certainly new policy in terms of looking at health and well-being across schools. And this is a really important and really welcome development. I think what's happening in Ireland and what's happening abroad is that there's a wider understanding about taking a whole school approach to supporting young people's mental health. And that's something that we're strongly engaging with Jigsaw. We've developed a One Good Schools programme in a number of schools around the country to support the development of well-being with young people. Okay, we're going to have to leave it there. Dr. Joseph Duffy, who is the CEO of Jigsaw, they're talking about that survey on the mental health of our youth. You're listening to The Michael Reid Show. Marie is back. You have more comments, Marie? I have indeed, Ken. People have been in touch regarding uh, your interview with Arlene Fitzsimons and the doc on call moving from Navin to Edward Shockland. Even though it's temporarily, there's a lot of concern over it. Uh, Theresa says that just for people to know that the health centre is the far side of Dunshockland opposite the graveyard. She feels that um, it's not going to be good for people living in the Navin er- area. She says that Navin is big enough to have its own dock on call and she doesn't feel that Dunshockland is the ideal place. She says we're heading into the winter. It's not a grade A hotel people are looking for. We just want a doctor and a nurse. It's a load of baloney, says Teresa. Deirdre from Kell says it's disgraceful that the service is moving from Navin to Dunshockland cannot understand how nowhere could be found in the whole of Navin to accommodate the I thought that was a bit strange as well yes Maura is worried about how long it will be before the dock on call service returns to Navin well I think they were talking about next March wasn't it Ken? yeah that's right yeah. Uh, she says that it will be a huge loss to the town and the surrounding area the people of Meath are used to it being in Navin and it seems strange that the HSE could not source another temporary location in the town Mary from Kells says why not use the old HSE building in Kells that's her suggestion yeah I think it's at the bottom of Carrick Street there or no sorry there's a HSE building there just uh, opposite uh, the Heritage Centre the old courthouse yes. ok another listener cannot believe that the Dr. and Call facilities are being moved to Dunshockland what if you're if you're living in Navin and you're under the weather you have to travel to Dunshockland to see the doctor then you might be sent back to Navin Hospital for treatment it's madness she says but again as she mentioned and I'm sure the people in Dunshockland and Dunboyne are quite happy because they up until now have had to travel to Navin. Indeed, yes. So we'll finish on that one for the moment, Ken, but I'm sure we'll be still getting lots in on that topic during the rest of the show. So do get in touch with us. Yes, and I think somebody called Margaret got in touch just in the last few minutes to say that she believes that she thinks this could be the thin end of the wedge. In other words, the uh, doctor and call will move to Dunshockland and it may be just part of the phased closure of Navin Hospital. So uh, we'll see how that pans out. That's certainly not been said at the moment and Arlene has said that they have sourced a permanent location in Navin so we'll we'll watch this space. Yeah, we'll keep an eye on that. Okay, uh, we have a very interesting uh, chat coming up later on with Carol Duffy from Dundalk who's a friend of Lisa Smith and uh, that's coming up in the next few minutes but before that we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. 
Now, as you are probably aware, there's been a lot of coverage in recent weeks about the plight of uh, Dundalk woman Lisa Smith, who joined the terrorist group Islamic State. The former member of the Irish Defence Forces is currently believed to be in Turkey, and the government here has said it is anxious for her to return home, more so because of the plight of her two-year-old daughter, whose name is Rakaya. Now, one woman who knows her is 38-year-old Carol Duffy from Dundalk, who is also a member of the Muslim community and indeed is a former friend of Lisa Smith. Uh, good morning, Carol, and thanks for joining us on the programme. Um, good morning, you're very welcome. Yes, uh, I understand you shared a house with Lisa Smith at one time for six months. What sort of a person is she? Um, well, on the face of it, I mean, I got on fine with her. Lisa was fine. Um, you know, it was only in, in matters of when she started getting into the religion that she actually started changing. And um, her, her her attitude was, she was very, she started getting very argumentative. She started getting very secretive. She started to get very, um, I would say she started to get militant. And you say she started getting very argumentative. Uh, yeah. Did she not like Western society or did she not like the Catholic faith or what faith was she? What what attracted her into to ISIL or ISIS, as it's sometimes referred to? Well, you see, that's that's the thing. It, it, you know, what attracted her to the religion is certainly different than what tra- attracted her into ISIS. Two very, very, very different things. In regards to the religion, I think it was just something that she stumbled upon because she did hang around with uh, non-practicing Muslims. She had friends that were Muslims from Muslim countries, so she was exposed to it that way. In terms of ISIS, that's something completely different. That would, I think, that was just um, for in her case. I think it was she seen a cause in it. She seen something in it that she liked, and and she went for it. And what did she like about ISIL? I think it was. I think for her, she. She always seemed to go to the extreme of everything. Before she became a Muslim, she was looking at different religions, but it was always the extreme end. If she was looking at anything to do, she was very interested in Palestine and the conflict there, but she went to the extreme end of it. It was always the Jews against the Muslims. It was always, you know, there was never a middle ground with her. There was never a grey area. She always went for the extreme of everything. When she'd done something, she went full in with it. The same thing happened with the religion. She was Muslim maybe two, three weeks, and that was it then. She was all in. She never took her time. She never researched anything properly. She just went in head first. Um, some people are uh, amazed that for a woman who was a member of the Irish uh, Air Corps, which is part of the Defence Forces, that whatever mm-hmm. training she got uh, within the Irish defence system, uh, that she would actually take the opposite view. Where do you think along the way she had this conversion to Islam? Was there one particular incident or was it a combination of factors or did she have a bad experience with somebody or, you know, do you, do you know actually what happened? To be honest, I think originally her um, conversion had a lot to do with the relationship that she was in um, she was in a relationship with with a Muslim person, and I think that's where the interest first came in to it. And I think at the start, that's that's mainly what the yeah I think mainly that was her objective was to become a Muslim and possibly marry this person, and it didn't work out that way. And then the interest just grew from there. 
Can you understand uh, the anger towards her on the basis that she joined an organisation that believes in cutting people's heads off, treats women as third-class citizens, uh, is totally opposed to all things Western, and that the state here appears to be going out on a limb to bring her home? Can you understand the anger towards that? Well, I'm one of the people that's very, very angry. I think it's absolutely disgraceful. Um, to be honest with you, I'm all for taking the children home. If uh, her daughter, Rakaya, she definitely, 100%, that child is pure innocent in this. The child should not have to suffer any more or see any more of the horrible things that she's seen. And that child needs to be in Ireland, along with Alexander's child, who's also Irish. Those children need to be brought home. The parents, on the other hand, completely different. That's completely different. They went over there in the knowledge of what was happening in that country. There's no way anyone can say that when they went to Syria that they did not know what was happening to those innocent Yazidi people. There's nobody can say that. And if they do say that, we're going to call them out as liars because that's what they are. And they need to be punished for that. There needs to be some sort of justice there for those Yazidi people. And I can totally understand people being very angry at the money that's going to be spent to take her home. And I think what happens is, I think what's happening now is, is that everyone's talking about the plight of Lisa. There is no plight of Lisa. There's the plight of the Syrians and the Yazidis, and there's the plight of the children. There is no plight for her. There is no plight. Well, now, uh, you're quoted in uh, today's uh, Daily Mirror as saying that, um, you know, she's arrogant, argumentative, and that you don't think she should be welcome home because you've implied that she wouldn't be welcome home. Um, the government seems to be pushing the line that, in real terms, this is more so about the plight of her daughter, Rakaya. Now, to be objective about it, doesn't the government have a point that it's the child's life that really is the issue here and not Lisa Smith? It has, and, and that's what most of, that's what any, any of us within the Muslim community and outside the Muslim com- community, I, I, anyone would, it's always the children. The focus should be on those poor, innocent children because we don't know what they have seen and what they've suffered and the damage that that has done. It's always about the children. If Rokia had been at an age where she could probably travel on her own, it would be a different thing. But she's obviously a toddler. She needs her, her mommy. She's not going to be able to travel without her mommy. And it's going to be a, a very, you know, it's going to be a very damaging upheaval for the child because what she's known now and what she's going to come home to is very, very different. And I think obviously the focus is on the child. But as well as that too, we also have the fact that people are going to look at her mother. And then we have this um, narrative going around now that she was radicalised, that it was out of her hands. You know, and I think that with the child, the child sometimes, the issue gets very, very blurred between Lisa and the child. The focus should always and always will be the baby. Always and will be. Well, now you're quoted in today's Irish Daily Mirror as saying, we should be nervous about this because of Lisa Smith's connections. You seem to be, you seem to be implying that even if Lisa Smith was to return home, uh, she would still maintain a connection with these very evil and dangerous people. Is that the case, do you believe? Um, Yeah, I do honestly think that because the ideology that you would have to have to go into those countries, you're not going to drop them overnight. That has to be something ingrained in you. There has to be something in there you've seen. You're not going to change sides overnight. You're really not. How are you going to? She's lived over there for years. She married men who she knew were involved in ISIS and could have possibly, um, you know, hurt women, sold them, raped them, beheaded people, shot at people. She knew that when she married these people. So that's obviously ingrained there. She obviously doesn't, uh, you know, that's obviously not a factor. Most of us, would absolutely recoil at being with someone who did those things. She went and she married them. 
So, and even how she got there, we don't know how she got there. Because there's no way you could have hopped on a flight and just said, right, I'm off to Syria and away off and cross the border on your own. It wouldn't have happened. So who do we know? And also, we also know from her own mouth, because any of the stuff I'm saying, she just said it herself. She was friends. She lived on the same street as Sally Jones and her husband, Junid Hussein. There's been reports from the NGOs who say that she was, went to a training camp before she, in Raqqa before she actually was put into a Madassa. We also have reports from um, one of the charities in Syria who said that she trained girls in light weaponry. I mean, these are things that she has... This is a, these are documents that have been seen and these are things she's admitted herself. These things didn't happen. She didn't just wander over to Syria, meet these people, join these camps. And, 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 and this didn't happen out of nowhere. She would have had to have connections. Well, now, that's now, the next question I, w- I want to ask you about. And, um, you know, it's only a question that maybe members of the public would ask. But, yeah. you know... The Muslim community in Dundalk, I don't know how big it is, maybe you might tell me because you're a member of the Muslim community mm-hmm. itself. Would there be Muslims in Dundalk who might have connections with ISIS? Well, you see, this is the this is this thing that um, I think gets very confused along the way. A lot of these people who are in these groups, they don't attend the mosques because really what happens is a lot of times with our mosques, in, including ours, and I'll talk about ours more so than anyone else's, we have um, we would have classes which are either run by myself or on the the side of the men. It's run by um, one of the men over there. We're very very careful about what people uh, who comes into the mosque. We also take a, like a what we call a roll call that goes straight up to the community guard. They know who's in and out of our mosque, and they will come down if we have classes. We welcome them to come down and listen to what we're doing. You know, they're very involved in any of our days out. They're very involved with us as a group, and I think to to that I think that um, I think that's very important in the community, and I think it's important for the for the guards as well for them to know that if there is any sort of suspicion that they can come down and have that um, suspicion wiped away within our community, that they know that there's nobody there. And to be honest with you, I'll be the first to say it. If there is something like that going on, I'll be the first one to report it. I'm an Irish person with Christian family. Sure, but th- just let me ask you this question. You know yeah, how, ma- how many Muslims are in Dundalk? We have roughly, um, I'd say roughly now we have about 600. 600. And is the Muslim yeah. community in Dundalk, are they worried or concerned that that they may be targeted or they may be subjected to abuse because they may be seen to be, if you like, uh, protecting Lisa Smith's reputation or that they're sympathetic to her. Do you have any concerns? Is there any fears in Dundalk about what's happening? Yeah, we do have a lot of fears. Um, we have we've ha- have had to have the guards come down and... Um, you know, kind of stand and, and when we've had events on, especially after the light when everything, when all the news stories broke about her. And um, my own self, you know, I, I've been physically attacked. I've had things thrown at my house. I have been doxxed online where people have put my phone number, my email and my address online. I've had abuse, you know, online. Someone actually wanted to know where they could buy battery acid so that um, they would make sure that I would wear my veil permanently. Like, that's not something you hear every day. I've never had that type of abuse. And I'm from Dundalk, and I've lived here the majority of my life. So this stuff is coming out now. I mean, in saying that, people in Dundalk, that's not how they are. This is a very, very small few that are very ignorant. And you think, we are afraid. Do you think we that's because? Afraid. Do you think that's because people are either anti-Muslim, they're anti-immigrant, or they just see Islam uh, and what's going on with ISIS as, um, we'll say, a movement that is opposed to all things Western, and that some of the deeds carried out by ISIS are completely shocking? 
I think um, it's definitely the latter. Um, Dundalk people are not anti-immigrant. They're definitely not racist. Um, there's no sentiment like that in Dundalk that I've ever experienced. And I am married to a, a non-national. We don't, he loves it here. There's never been any trouble like that with Dundalk people. Um, what I do think is, I think it's a lot of fear. I think it, as well as that too, it's a lot of, um, they look at ISIS and they equate one with the other. So ISIS and Islam go hand in hand, which is very, very, very not true. We, I mean, we're totally opposed to it. Okay, well, Carol, Carol, you're a former friend of Lisa Smith. I yeah. mean, do you, main any, do you maintain any connection with Lisa Smith's family? And how are they, if you like, uh, squaring up at present? I haven't talked to her family in a long time, but I can, I mean, I'd say they're just, I mean, especially her parents, I'd say they're absolutely distraught, like, to find out that their daughter's over there and then to find out they have a granddaughter and they haven't seen her and she's in that horrible country and, you know, in a horrible camp. They must be distraught. I mean, my heart goes out to them, like, it's, it's, it's terrible for them. But from what I know is, I mean, I understand they're defending their daughter. They think she's innocent. You know, no one's going to blame them for that. Um, but I'd say they're absolutely distraught over this. Okay, Carol, we're going to have to leave it there. It's something we'll be keeping uh, an eye and an ear on in the coming days as uh, speculation mounts that Lisa Smith will be returning to Ireland uh, in the next week or so. Carol Duffy there, a former friend of Lisa Smith, uh, joining us from Dundalk. We'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, just getting back to the text machine, Margaret got in touch and wanting to know how much is it costing the Irish taxpayer to get Lisa Smith home? Well, that's uh, like another question for another day. But I want to move on because the chairperson of the Irish Road Victims Association has called on the government to investigate the phone records of those involved in fatal road collisions. This is a very sensitive issue as it raises concerns about invasion of privacy, while another train of thought is that it may assist the Gardaí in determining the cause of fatal accidents. Donna Price is the chairman of the Irish Road Victims Association and joins me now. Uh, Donna, you're calling on the Gardaí to be allowed to investigate phone records of those involved in fatal road accidents. Why so? Good morning, Ken. It, it, it isn't actually just in fatal crashes. It's in all crashes where death or injury occurs. Um, we feel it's a necessary requirement. Um, a number of years ago, we discovered that um, those the surviving drivers involved in fatal crashes weren't being tested for alcohol and drugs. I mean, in 90% of cases, they weren't being tested. So we um, managed to have the legislation changed to make it mandatory for the Gardaí to do those tests where death and injury occurred. It is now mandatory and the Gardaí must give a reason if they don't test. We want the same to apply for mobile phones because mobile phones are just as dangerous on the road. Uh, Drivers are just as impaired as if they had a couple of drinks on them. So it's vital that we we have effective deterrence and that when the worst happens, that families know the circumstance surrounding the death and serious injury of their loved ones because it has huge repercussions for families if we don't have that information and we can't prove that um, a breach of the road traffic law has occurred, for instance, that would make you entitled maybe to be treated as a victim of crime and entitled to compensation for your injuries and all of that. So it has huge repercussions and this is why we're requesting that there's mandatory checking. Okay, now, Um, as I understand you correctly, I think what you're trying to establish here is that if somebody was on their phone and texting or whatever they do on their phone and they run into somebody, that the the, uh, very act of being looking at their phone while they should have been looking straight ahead may have been a contributory factor to an accident. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. That's exactly it. OK, um, well, now... We need to be able to prove the circumstances surrounding the crash. Um, in order to, I suppose, apportion blame for the, for the collision in which the death or injury occurred... I mean, if you if you can't apportion blame to the other driver, um, then it's it's the victim of that crash is going to be blamed, and, and uh, very often they're dead or sure, very seriously injured and not able to uh, to. Um, okay, but how, how do you differentiate between somebody who's got a mobile phone in in their hand up to their ear, um, and they crash into somebody, and somebody who is speaking on their phone using a Bluetooth application, which is completely legal? How do you determine? whether the person uh, using the phone at the time of an accident was looking ahead or looking down at their phone on the basis that one form of phone use is against the law and the other type of phone use is within the law. I know that is an anomaly. We we rely on the Gardaí, obviously, to carry out the investigation and, you know, to determine the circumstances surrounding the crash. And what I would say is it's equally as distracting to be using a Bluetooth device, believe it or not, it's also, you know, uh, proven that for five minutes after a call, you're just as distracted, um, be it, you know, thinking about what has occurred on that phone call or whatever. So what we're advocating is for really, you know, when you're behind the wheel of a car to concentrate on driving. Um, it's not a phone booth. Um, we really shouldn't be distracted in any way when we're using the roads because you're endangering your own life. Sure, but family in the car and other road users. Sure, but I have to put it to you that there could yeah. be what are called GDPR issues here. That uh, under the law, in theory, nobody else has a right to check your mobile phone records to see who you rang or who you ordered a pizza from or whatever. And that except can ju- maybe where death or injury has occurred as a result of your actions. So we have uh, competing interests there. You know, you've your right to privacy. And you've the family's right where their child has been killed. You know, are they entitled to know the circumstances surrounding the death of their child? And, and, and we would come from the position where we say it's a basic human right to know the circumstances surrounding the death of your child. You know, whether it was a drunk driver, a distracted sure, driver, sure. Uh, whatever. It doesn't necessarily also have to be a mobile phone. I mean, there are in-car entertainment systems which are equally as distracting. You know, sat-nav systems. You shouldn't be setting your sat-nav while you're driving. Um, things like that. So, so there are many things to be taken into consideration. But you understand where we're coming from. Sure, sure. It's from the the position of the bereaved and the seriously injured. Okay. You know, well, I, I, I'm, I'm just going to. I'm just going to stop it there because we are up against the clock and we have other items uh, to, to, to broadcast between now and the close of the programme. But uh, it's certainly an interesting call. Uh, I wish you well uh, with trying to lobby the powers that be to get the, the, the laws changed on that. So uh, thanks very much for joining us on the programme. That's Donna Price, who is chairperson of the Irish Road Victims Association. Now, you may or may not know that, believe it or not, Today is International Men's Day, and as you are probably aware, the world is expected to celebrate the male species some chance. However, all is not well in the male world. A major conference on the difficulties facing the modern-day male is taking place in Wynn's Hotel in Dublin on Saturday, with a number of international speakers attending. Earlier, I spoke to David Walsh. He's a chairman of advocacy group Men's Voices of Ireland, and I began by asking him what the objective of Saturday's conference is? Well, it's to focus on issues of concern to men which uh, rarely get attention in the, in the, in the mainstream media uh, but which uh, do need um, attention both from the public and from lawmakers uh, and policymakers as well. 
So the, the title or the, the theme of the, of the conference is Let's Create a Better Future for Men. Okay, now some women might think this is a, a bit of a joke because they've always traditionally perceived it as being a man's world. But what are the very issues that you're going to discuss? Yeah, we're going to <clears throat> focus on, on, on a number of issues. Um, uh, P- P- Patricia Casey, Professor Patricia Casey is going to talk about uh, mental health uh, and um, possible uh, problems leading to suicide for men. Um, another uh, well-known speaker is Brian O'Sullivan. He's a counsellor, and he's going to talk about parental alienation, time for change. Now, parental alienation is something that takes place uh, when there are uh, acrimonious breakups in a, in a relationship, and in particular where there, there are children, and there is a, a, um, a, a kind of a tussle or, or kind of a struggle for custody or, uh, of the children, and sometimes um, one parent will try to alienate um, children against the other parent. So that, that's what he's going to talk about. But then we have uh, um, very uh, two very powerful speakers, uh, one of whom is coming from Lancashire. Uh, she's a professor at the university there. Her name is Nicola Graham-Keevan, and she's going to talk about domestic violence. And um, the, uh, the and the fourth very uh, strong speaker, somebody we're very lucky to have. Her name is Karen Strawn. She's a Canadian activist on behalf of men. She has been active for the last uh, ten years or so. Um, she has spoken at many many events, both in Canada and in the U.S. And actually, she's coming to us from an event in Oslo, which is taking place today. She's speaking at this event in, in Oslo today, and uh, we're lucky that, that she'd, she'd be able to come to Dublin for the weekend. Okay, let's talk about domestic violence. I mean, traditionally, it's always perceived that uh, domestic violence is men being abusive to women, but there appears to be growing evidence. I think there's an organisation in Navan called Amen, which is effectively a, a refuge centre for the male species. There seems to be growing evidence, there. I say it, that uh, women are becoming more violent in the home against their male spouses, but it seems to get very little coverage. Uh, how, how bad is the situation? Yes, <clears throat> this is something that is rarely addressed by, <clears throat> by the media, but it turns out there is very, very strong evidence now to suggest that both men and women <clears throat> perpetrate domestic violence at comparable rates. There is not a great deal of difference between the rates perpetration. And, uh, but this side of it, it receives very little attention. We know that the, uh, domestic violence is a very, very complex uh, issue. Um, <clears throat> I'll give you an idea. Um, more than 50% of domestic violence is mutual. In other words, both parties are engaged in it. So when a, a row breaks out, <clears throat> domestic breaks out, um, <clears throat> both parties are actually guilty. <laughs> if you like, they're both, uh, both perpetrating the violence and they're also the victims at the same time. So more than 50% of that, <clears throat> of that violence is mutual. And <clears throat> that's a, 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 a fact that needs to be taken into a, a attention when laws are being drawn up because the, the, uh, the overwhelming um, it, it, it drive is to find one person guilty and the other person the victim, you know? So that's not the way to look at it um, as, as the current evidence is telling us. A second, a second very, very um, fact that is not very well known is that women are just as controlling as men. The, um, 
the uh, the perception of, uh, of domestic violence that we we hear is that uh, men use uh, domestic violence to control. It's all about controlling women. But the the evidence that is coming out is telling us that uh, that women are just as likely to want to con- to exercise control, and that they are also equally likely to initiate the violence. So. These are very pertinent facts which um, are not being addressed um, in the um, in, in, in policymaking, in law, generally speaking. Well, I, I remember speaking to Mary Cleary of Amen in Navin some years back, and she told me that, uh, dare I say it, a lot of men get uh, beaten up in the home by their, their female spouses, but are actually afraid to go to the Gardaí because there's a macho thing uh, built in whereby they do not want to be seen to be weak. Is this part of the problem in highlighting this issue? Yes, yeah, so we believe that uh, this, this is a, a very large part of the problem, is that men <clears throat> are, are afraid to speak up. Uh, they are afraid either because they're embarrassed, as you say, or because they, be- they think that they won't be believed if they do go to, the, to, to report to the Gardaí. Um, and this is a major factor. <clears throat> if, you, um, if you look back at the last uh, major survey on domestic violence, which, which was held in Ireland back in 2005 now, a good while ago, it found that only 5% of men uh, uh, report <clears throat> severe violence to the Gardaí, only 5%. Um, now, not all women do it either. Only uh, 29% of women report severe violence to the, to the Gardaí. But the... But the um, the mismatch there is very apparent, and uh, this is one of the reasons why um, services for male victims is so is so paltry. It, it's 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 unbelievably um, minimal. You know, uh, one of the factors that we've been trying to get uh, get going for for a long time is to provide far more um, services for male victims to, to make it extensive, because there there is actually no proper um, uh, full-time 24-hour um, service for men in, in a city like Dublin, which is astounding. There you go. That's uh, David Walsh of Men's Voices of Ireland uh, talking about that conference on the plight of the Irish male, which takes place at Wynn's Hotel in Dublin on Saturday next. Still to come, I'll be talking to Garda Patrick Gill, who's at the LMFM Garda Crime Desk. But before that, we'll take a break. Ken Murray on LMFM. Now, it's that time of the week where we go to the LMFM Garda Crime Desk to hear about uh, what our local criminals have been up to in the last uh, week or so. I'm joined in studio by Garda Patrick Gill of Trim Station. So, Patrick, uh, talk us through uh, what's on the, uh, if you like, the log sheet for the last week or so. Yes, good morning, Ken. Thank you very much for having me today. If you just come right in there, Patrick. Apologies, yep. Good morning, Ken, and good morning, all your listeners. So, obviously, this weekend has been, uh, there have been a number of incidents in the Louth and Mead uh, areas. So starting off would be the theft in uh, Bank of Ireland in Dunlear. It took place on Saturday morning last, the 16th of November. On arrival, Gardaí, they noticed an ATM had been damaged and the, also the bank premises on Main Street. With Digger and Lurie remained at the scene, there were a significant amount of damage caused to the premises. Gardaí are appealing for any person that were in that was in the Dunlear area between between 3am and 4am and who saw anything unusual or any road users with any dash camera footage to so please make contact with Gardaí. And they're also appealing to anyone who saw any suspicious vehicles in the Dundalk area at this time. Uh, Gardy believed that those responsible left the scene in a silver Toyota Land Cruiser with a parcel registration 04MH heading north of Dunlear. 
a yellow Massey, a yellow Massey Ferguson tractor and a low loader stolen in the Cullerville area of South Armagh were also used by the gang. It's believed the vehicles were stolen sometime between 2.30pm on Friday and 2.40am on Saturday. The low loader was later recovered at the scene and the tractor was recovered in the Kilcairley area of North Louth. So Gary, would be very interested here for anyone who may have any information concerning the movement of these vehicles on Friday and Saturday. So if you would kindly contact, contact Drogheda Garda Station on 041-987-4200 or the Garda Confidential Line on 1-800-666-111. Now, I believe there was a theft of uh, GAA All-Ireland medals and the like at a house in Athboy. Yes, that's correct, Ken. In Higginstown area of Athboy, to be precise, on Friday evening last, the 15th of November, there were a number of items of sentimental value, including jewellery and, as you mentioned, six GAA medals. It occurred overnight between the hours of 9pm and 12.30am on the 15th to the 16th. The owner is also offering a reward for their safe return. Anyone who observed any vehicle acting suspiciously in the area between those times to please contact Athboy Garda Station on 046-943-2201. Now moving on to RD, and I believe there were two burglaries in the Bohanamo area. Yes, that is correct. Unfortunately, there have been two burglaries in the Bohanamo area of RD on Saturday evening last, the 16th of November. At approximately 7.30pm in one premises, three males gained entry to a house in the area and a sum of cash was taken. And so anyone that in the, was in the area at the time or believed that to have seen any vehicle acting suspiciously, to please contact Gardaí in RD on 041-687-1130. Now, let's move up to uh, Black Rock in North Louth. I believe there were two burglaries there as well over the weekend. Yes, that is correct in Black Rock. Unfortunately, this one took place on Friday evening and Saturday afternoon. The first one on Friday evening between 7.30 and 8pm. Entry was gained through a back patio door of the house. Considerable amount of cash and jewellery were taken. And we're looking for information regarding the uh, whereabouts of a silver or grey Audi A3 that was seen in the vicinity of the area at the time. And unfortunately on Saturday, also in Blackrock in the Earlsfort area, between the hours of 2pm and 7.30pm, four luxury watches were taken from the main upstairs bedroom of the premises. Any information regarding both these incidents to please contact Gardaí in Dundalk on 042-938-400. And of course there is a Garda Confidential Line number. That is correct, Ken. The Garda Confidential Line is 1-800-666-111 and it is there to provide any public and Garda indeed with assistance for any information that can be Okay, that's uh, Garda Patrick Gill from Trim Station giving us an update there from the LMFM Garda Crime Desk. And that just about wraps it up for this morning and indeed wraps it up for me. Michael Reid will be back again uh, tomorrow morning. I want to thank uh, Chris Murray on sound, Maggie McGuire and Marie Cairns who put the programme together from myself, Ken Murray. Until the next time Bye for now The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie Hold up What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hold up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello, Fresh. 